Okay, so this morning we're going to look at uh, Jonah and Micah as we continue our study in the Twelve or the Minor Prophets, as you're more familiar uh, with them being called. This is a time period where uh, the people of God and Israel and divided kingdom, north and south, Israel, Judah, are on their way out. The prophets have been sent in by God, the covenant enforcers, God's cops, to uh, try to get the people to repent and also, um, at times, to try to get other nations to even repent, as we'll see in the book of Jonah. Uh, we also saw last week with Obadiah, for instance, that God also has some uh, harsh words to say, some judgment speech against some of the surrounding nations like Edom and some of the others. But today we want to look at Jonah and Micah. <clears throat> Both of them have their unique aspects to them. The time period that we're looking at is <clears throat> the, the period often referred to as the classical prophets, so the prophets that are writing. Doug Stewart says that uh, 760 to about 460, so 760 to 460 is about the time period for the classical um, prophets time period where God is building his scriptures. He has these guys called to, to speak, and then it gets written down, and now today we're still reading about it because it's been put in the scriptures, or part of the, the canon. During this time, um, the, the people are increasingly treating Yahweh as a, a national God, which he is, but they're clinging to their personal and their local clan gods at the same time. So syncretism, polytheism. And so they're not denying that Yahweh is the God of Israel, but they've also added some other stuff to the bag. And that's part of the, the problem. So they've got to push back against that. We're going to see that a little bit probably in the book of Jonah. The idea that Jonah tries to flee to the other side of the country, if you will, from God may be related to this idea of viewing God as this national deity. So if I can get out of Israel, get out of Dodge, then um, I can get away from Yahweh. But what Jonah learns is that Yahweh is not just the God of Israel, he's the God of the universe. And so there's no escaping God um, as far down as you go, as far up as you go. So uh, the, the prophets, as we're looking at them also, we've been looking at uh, the major prophets. We covered them. We saw how God spoke to the north and God spoke to the south. And then we have covered um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, we saw how the the first uh, section of the minor prophets kind of alternates between the north and the south. And so um, Hosea, for instance, with with the north, and then uh, uh, Joel uh, with the south, right? But also there's these prophets that are contemporary, these late 8th century prophets. So you've got Isaiah as the, as a major prophet, but then you've also got... Um, Micah, Nahum, Hosea, Amos, and, um, and Jonah <laughs> that are part of this group, Joel, Obadiah, of early prophets um, speaking to, to God's people before they're all taken off into to captivity. And so that's, that's some of the, the background that we're looking at as we look at Jonah. Uh, the book is in many ways a microcosm of God's relationship um, to his whole creation in history, or, or with his whole creation in history. And uh, God, out of his compassion, desires to bring people to himself. Um, that's going to include the Gentiles. 
He's the only Old Testament prophet to try and run from God, and so that's what you can remember about him. Um, you know, try to keep him separate. Similar to Elijah and Elisha, who were called to minister to Gentiles also. Um, and so all three of them, of course, are also mentioned by Jesus in the Gospels. The timeline that we're looking at um, is about 853 B.C. Assyria fights Israel and other nations at the Battle of Karkar. Right? Now, a little while after that, right, Jonah's activity begins. Okay? And by a little while, I'm talking 60, 70 years or so. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser will become king right here about 745, and Assyria will conquer Israel in 722. So Jonah is, is prophesying a time period before Tiglath-Pileser's rise to power, but after a time period where the Assyrians had already come in and taken control of some land, um, Israel has already had to pay tribute, which means they were underneath Assyria, but then, as we'll see in a few minutes, the dominance faded because Assyria had some housekeeping, so to speak, to do. And so during that time period, during Jeroboam's time period, uh, Israel had become uh, prosperous, etc. So then Sennacherib will invade Judah down here, 701. And 605, Babylon will defeat Assyria at the Battle of Carchemish. <coughs> and that will then lead to a change in powers, which eventually will lead to uh, Jerusalem's demise as well. Just the world powers um, chart again as we're just getting our, our bearings. And so, you know, we're, we're talking prior to everything up here. And so Assyria and then a lapse in power. So the rest of them, they're, they're not up and uh, running yet. Geographically speaking, when we look at uh, what's going on, Nineveh, top right corner. Okay, up there on the Tigris River. And we'll talk more about Nineveh in a few moments, but Nineveh's way over there. Okay, Jerusalem, okay, Gath Heifer right here, and Tarshish is way this way. Okay, um, the, the jaunt, the journey to get over to Nineveh, you know, you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, three months or so. Um, we know that just from <coughs> our, our studies of, mostly from our other, our old, uh, Old Testament backgrounds class, you know, we were talking about how Darius had built the, the roads that went all the way from, you know, Susa, which is down in, down in here, all the way up to Greece. Um, it's about a three-month journey, and uh, he had horse stations every 15 miles, so his, his um, men could get there in seven days. But for Jonah, the title and general info, the title comes from the main character of the book, Jonah, okay? That's pretty common by now. 8th century prophet, okay, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, or some of the other people that uh, prophesied during this time period, all right? You can see that Jonah is probably a little bit earlier than a lot of these guys, um, but of course, the, the dates, as we'll see in just a moment when we discuss dates, are a bit uh, wide-ranging, um, depending on who you ask. several different views on the book, four that we're going to focus on here. The first is the historical view, and that, that's what we're going to uh, take. Now, as, as you do your own studying, you know, every, everything we do in this course is, is pretty big picture. Uh, you have to take a, a course that specifically focuses on a book. It's 
you really want to you know dig into it. You spend a lot of time in a couple hours um, to get to get through it. So we're giving some big picture info, but when you come to the book of Jonah, um, there's a lot of people who just think that it's made up or myths or didn't really happen. And so you're going to have to decide for yourself. Um, but I hold that it's historical, it's authentic historical narrative by a historical person. Second uh, Kings 14.25 mentions Jonah as a real person. Uh, the traditional Jewish and Christian interpretation is that it's a historical book, as is uh, Josephus in, in his book Antiquities, uh, Philo, uh, Tobit, and Maccabees, and Sirach, all who are um, writing from the intertestament time period in between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. Uh, they all uh, basically support the idea that uh, he was a real person and really did uh, minister and, and was a prophet. Uh, Jesus quoted him in the Gospels. And um, J.G. Eichhorn, Eichhorn it led the departure from the traditional view. And so following him, there's a whole horde of people who have followed in his steps. The second view is that it's allegorical. It's a symbolic narrative in which past represents an element in the historical and religious experience of Israel. Okay, so you kind of spiritualize it all. <coughs> That's what allegory does. The parabolic view says that it's a moral story that teaches. So it's like the parable of the New Testament. So he doesn't have to be a real person. Um, it's also a kind of a moral of the story kind of thing. Okay? And the mythical view would argue that it's a myth that grew up around some event in Israel's history. So there was something that happened, and so this story is related to it. But did it happen just like this? Was there a real guy that, you know, got dumped in the ocean and a, a big fish, you know, swallowed him up? No. You know, but it has to do with something that was taking place in the time period. So those are the, the views on the book that you will encounter. Went to a, a bookstore. You might pick up the book, and it could be any one of those uh, four. So four views there. The author of the book we traditionally are going to hold to as Jonah, even though the book does not indicate um, who wrote it. It doesn't say it's written by Jonah. The prayer in chapter 2 is in, in first person, so that might lead some credence to it. The rest of the book, though, is third person, as we'll see. So critical view sees the fact that chapters 1, 3, and 4 are written in third person as evidence that Jonah did not write the book. However... The counter to that is that Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, and others also wrote about themselves in the third person. In fact, there's some research that indicates that um, it's not all that uncommon for a prophet uh, to do that. So the traditional view holds that Jonah lived during the days of, um, sorry for the typo there, of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, during the reign of Jeroboam. His name means um, dove. else do we know about him? We know that he's the, the son of Amittai from Gath Hepher. Okay? He restored Israel's borders from um, this is what Second uh, King says. He restored Israel's border from uh, Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Erebah according to the word of the Lord. The God of Israel has spoken through his servant the prophet Jonah son of Amittai from Gath Hepher. And so Second Kings a historical narrative book indicates um, this information about him. And so 
Where is uh, Gath Heifer? Well, it's a small village about three miles northeast of um, Jerusalem. And it's the city of the tribe of Zebulun, according to Joshua chapter 19. Um, the village was um, perched up on a hill. The image of it right here. It's perched up on top of a hill in Galilee that is now dominated by the Israeli Arab town of uh, Mashhad. In the 8th century B.C., Gath Heifer would have been a pleasant place to call home near a fertile valley and a strong spring with fresh Mediterranean um, breezes during the year. As long as Israel was at peace, Galilee was quiet and life could be good. But with the Aramaeans constantly knocking at Israel's uh, northern door and the Assyrians gathering forces to smash it down, the threat of what might be always lay at hand. And so, Gath Heifer, uh, where he was from, Regarding the genre, it's been said by, by different uh, scholars and, and uh, literary critics that it's a literary masterpiece. Um, it's both simple and sophisticated. You know, Jonah's one of those uh, stories that we, we tell our kids in Sunday school, you know? Um, so everybody thinks that it was a whale, which apparently no, some big fish, but they say whale. Uh, could have been a whale, might not have been a whale, right? Um, but that, that's what we kind of learn, and uh, there's a bit more to the story, really, than satire, exposing human vice and folly, employing humor, hyperbole, irony, double entendre, and other literary figures. Um, the point of satire is to show the foolishness um, of, of something, human vices, etc. in this case. The, the genre itself of, of satire has four different uh, categories or elements to it. One is the object of the attack. So in the book of Jonah, that would be Jonah himself. His bigotry is ethnocentrism. And so uh, if you want a, a book in the Bible, and this is not the only one, but this is a very good, probably the, the best maybe example, of uh, a person who's supposed to be God's person, right? A prophet, no less, uh, who demonstrates clear ethnocentrism, hatred towards a group of people, uh, feels completely superior, and does not want anything uh, good in the sense of spiritualness, or probably anything in his case, to the people he's sent to. He basically uh, would like for them to all go to hell. Um, I think that in the 21st century, if we were talking about this and writing about it, that's what we would say. It would be a flat out go to hell. Um, that's, that's what he wants. Whereas God wants the opposite. Um, so, the object of the attack. Number two, the, the vehicle for this is a narrative or a story. So how do you get the point across? Through a story. The norm or standard by which Jonah is judged is going to be the character of God. So if it's a satire, you're trying to show the foolishness or the folly or sinfulness or, or whatever of the character of Jonah. Uh, what are you contrasting that with? Well, it's the character of God. We, we see what God is like, and how do we see what God is like? We see what God is like through the story. Let me make a side comment for a second here. There's been some research done among uh, missionaries and missions work, and maybe more, I don't know, there began to be a large change in uh, how missionaries did work, probably more than 20 years, uh, and th 
they began doing what is now called chronological storytelling. Basically what that means is you tell the story of the Bible. God's story, but you start from things you start from the beginning. So this is actually extremely common in uh, pretty much probably the majority of missionaries in the majority of places where there's no gospel witness. And I think we should learn from that. I mean, there's actually a movement in in uh, the West and in America in Sunday school curriculum over the last five plus years that you now see almost all major publishers have a chronological um, journey through the Bible, So, which I'm very glad to see. So my point with that is this. <coughs> There's research done, and it was shown that um, the number 64 just popped into my head, but I don't know if that's the right number. It was shown that over time, the people who were exposed to the stories of God, no doctrinal teaching, no exposition on, on doctrinal or theological concepts, just teaching them the stories from the Bible, that when they had learned, again, I don't remember what the number was, I don't know why 64 just popped into my head, but when they had learned X number of these stories, they had the equivalent of going to seminary and getting a master's of divinity. Never had theology school. Where did they get their theology? From the stories that were told. So remember, in every Bible story, the hero is always God. It was never Jonah, Daniel, Abraham, David. Those were never the heroes. The hero is God. Um, and that's one of the biggest mistakes we make, and there's been a, a move that's correcting some of that with the chronological Bible teaching with our kids. Like our, the, the problem is that how you teach the kid is, is the adult you're creating. So y your Bible stories, you learn most of them as a kid. Right? And that stuff doesn't leave you. And uh, unless you have a concerted effort to override that, that's still going to be your view. That's, that's your view of Jonah, whatever you learned as a kid. Um, David, you know, who's, you know, David, oh, he resists temptation, he slays Goliath. Um, yeah, those are both true things, but, like, that's really not the point of either story. Um, God is the, the hero in all the stories. So what does the, the story of Jonah teach us? It's about the compassion of God. It's about how God cares about even pagan Gentiles. So God doesn't only care about the Israelites. He actually cares about the pagans. Now this is even more unsettling if you're an Israelite because these are the people who, just before Jonah's time, Israel has been uh, subservient to and have been paying tribute money to. And just after Jonah's time, these are the people that are going to come in and totally oppress them. So, God is demonstrating love for the ultimate enemies of his people at this time, which is why Jonah hates them so much. But the point is, that's love, and Jonah means rebellious, pouting prophet. Um, so, fourthly, back to this, the tone is laughing while Jonah is a laughable figure, so he's a childish pouting prophet, etc. So, Jonah is the one that looks like a little baby. with the city leaders and kids, you know, why are you going into a three-year-old temper tantrum? Like, really? Over this? So, we deal with that on a regular basis. Um, so, th that's what's going on with Jonah. The suggested dates range from uh, before the exile in the mid-700s, that's where I hold to, 
to post-exile, 4 to 200 BC. All right. The the second subpoint on the Swedes, Jeroboam's reign, Jeroboam the second to be specific. All right. Um, would put it in the 700s. Okay. No, it can't be Jeroboam the first because Jeroboam the first is the first king of the Northern Kingdom, and that's like in 931. Okay, so that's a couple hundred years before. For those who put it after the exile, you're again, you're putting it like after the fact, and it doesn't line up with Jeroboam or any of this other stuff. Okay, so most of the conservative scholars and whatnot are going to go with mid 700s around the time of Jeroboam the second. Now, in order to get some historical context, all right, I want to do a little bit of some background material with the period. So those of you in the OG background class, this will be uh, somewhat of a review and, and maybe a few additional um, points of interest that uh, you may have here. So the map um, on the right is the map of Shalmaneser III's uh, campaigns around 841, okay? So if I said mid-700s, so 740 or so, uh, we're talking 100 years before, so we're trying to get a little bit of a context here. Assyria, if you remember, okay, is over here. Okay, they're not the world empire yet, so they don't have control of the whole thing, but so they're over in here, uh, but they've been encroaching into here. And so as you can see on the, the map over here, the blue lines are um, Shalmaneser's forces, okay? So they're, they're coming in from, from up over here, and they're coming down, right? They're coming down into this area, okay, to the east, and they're also over here on the west side, all right? Now, if you know your map, well, it's labeled, but even if it wasn't, Jerusalem is just uh, to the west of the top of the Dead Sea, right? So they have not reached down here into where the southern kingdom um, will be. Um, Samaria here is the capital of the of the northern kingdom. So you can see that they're, they're just above that. So they're almost knocking at the door 100 years before probably when Jonah was prophesying. So upon the death of Ahab okay, and Jehoshaphat, the Assyrians increased pressure. All right? Shalmaneser had not fared well at Karkar in 853. So that's about 13, 14 years prior to 841 but patiently waited 12 more years, and then he pushed his way to Damascus, Bashan, and Mount Carmel. Jehu's purging of both Israel and Judah's royal houses added instability. You remember who um, Jehu, Bloody Jehu? Um, that was probably OT background class that we talked about him. So, uh, Bloody Jehu, Bloody is my nickname, okay? That's kind of a funny pun. Um, so, Jehu came in, and he wiped out like 70 people. Okay, all that would have been uh, potential etc. Uh, all these brothers. And he wiped out people in both the north and the south. So that's why I call him Bloody Jehu. Alright? Now, there's a couple things that happen when you do that. One of them is you end up with instability. Okay? You just clean house. Well, even today, like there's when you start over, there's, there's a potential good thing, right? We're starting fresh. But there's also this, you're starting out with inexperienced people. Right? So they don't know the system, for instance. Well, in this case, what that does is that opens up the door. It's like every time you have a change in leadership, right, for Assyria to start pushing back in. Okay? And so that's what happened. So 
Shalmaneser began pushing back in, and this is going to lead to the complete Assyrian dominance, which will continue for the next 50 years. So unbeknownst to Jehu, his cleansing of the, of the palace, north and south, was actually playing right into the hands of the Assyrians. Okay? So that's what um, is being depicted there. So Israel was bent but not broken. Um, but then they had three uh, weak kings with the Assyrians. Shalmaneser the fourth, Ashurbam the third, and Ashurnarari the fifth. And they, be, they will become preoccupied with uh, internal matters. And so Adad Nirai the third, 796, okay? There's a swing towards monotheism. However, at his death, the nation entered a period of national weakness and even greater moral decay. So the expositor's Bible commentary says, During this time, Assyria was engaged in a life-and-death struggle with the mountain tribes of Urartu and its associates of Manai and Madai in the north, who had been able to push their frontier to within less than 100 miles of Nineveh. So Nineveh had its own issues. So what that did is that meant that they were backing off from the expansion. Well, at the same time that they're backing off from the expansion, um, that is also going to allow for Israel to increase its influence. And that's what Jeroboam II, 793-753, is going to do. So he's the most powerful king of Israel. He recouped the former territorial losses, pushing as far north as Alibo Hamath. Prosperity was on the rise, and things were, look, were beginning to look more like the, quote, glory days of King Solomon. Okay, what was King Solomon's time known for? Prosperity, peace, right? Um, but the religious life was not going as well. So while uh, monetarily, economically, politically, things may have been on the uptick, okay, they were the reverse for the spiritual and religious life, okay? So here now, the blue arrows are now Israelite, not Assyrian, okay? And so coming out of Samaria, you can see that he is um, having these battles, okay, with the, Ar the Arameans, and he's beginning to take land, and you can see him going all the way up, there's Libo Hamath up on the north, okay? Now, Damascus, that's Syria, okay? So he, he's already well north, okay, of where the Assyrian threat was previously. Okay. Uh, we have a little bit of archaeological stuff. I don't do so much archaeology in this, this class normally, but um, I'm doing a little bit of it uh, today with Jonah. So up to the, the top right, okay, that's a golden seal impression depicting an aggressive male lion roaring in its full stride as is inscribed on it, belonging to Shema, the servant of Jeroboam. It's found at Megiddo. It belongs to a high government official within the royal administration of Jeroboam. The lion, a common symbol of royalty and strength throughout the ancient Near East, reflects the, the tenor of the age of Jeroboam II. Okay? They're on the attack mode. They're the, the lion. That's their, their power. So they were also a favorite of the Assyrians, posing a certain amount of irony as to who the true lion in the region actually was. Is it Israel or is it uh, Assyria? So the evidence suggests that Israel had a booming economy under Jeroboam II, fueled largely by good harvests, full storehouses, and a well-oiled administrative machinery. 
slashing the conditions, but also bred complacency and eventually exploitation of the poorest people of society. All this is relevant not just for Jonah. Okay? This is background that we probably alluded to a little bit, but I did not go into detail like this, with the other prophets of the time period. So Amos, when he calls them the fat cows of Bashan, the women in Amos 4.1, okay? This is the time period that we're talking about. Same thing with um, Hosea, Micah, etc. So the crisis of injustice that echoed in the streets and the marketplaces of Israel was ignored by the elitist upper crust, which was otherwise preoccupied with maintaining their own interests. These conditions coincided exactly with the first of the so-called writing prophets, Amos and Hosea, whose prophetic invectives were hurled at everyone on the Israelite landscape who used his or her position for personal gain at the expense of others. I was talking, I was talking this past week with uh, with a friend of mine, former student, now now an adult, but about the prophets and this challenge of how do you live in a way that honors God and pleases God in, in our culture. And we were specifically talking about uh, money, investing, the stock market, etc. And when I had read some of Bruce Waltke's stuff um, a while back, um, uh, he seemed pretty much against that. He kind of views it as stealing, um, which the average Christian, and he, he said that probably almost every Christian, um, and it, I mean, it caught me off guard when I first read it too. Said, what are you talking about? Like, that's just what you do. So I was talking with this guy, and he was he was talking about the idea that, um, well, once somebody ventures into a consensus and an agreement, he was kind of saying, you know, all's fair, you know? Um, and so I pushed back against that, and I said, you know, just because you've entered into an agreement or into a consensus or you're going to do business and this is how the business operates, um, that doesn't throw out the window who you're actually responsible to and where your ethics have to come from. This is the, the roots of the whole WJ, WWJD campaign, which actually is rooted in the book by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. And um, if you don't know what that book is, I recommend you read it at some point. But the premise of that book set in the, I want to say 1800s, but uh, something like that. The premise of the book is as a pastor, and he challenges his people. At the end of the service, he challenges them. He says, whoever is willing to ask before you make any decision, it wasn't really a WWJD, but it was, but it was just differently phrased, phrased differently. Um, you're willing to question every decision you're making based on, um, you know, what God would have you to do. <laughs> so they started meeting, and they would, they would meet after service, and they would pray about this. And what the book does is it traces half a dozen people, all in different spheres of society, um, as they come face-to-face -face with questions they've never asked prior to. So you've got business um, people, you've got newspaper editors, you've got, you know, someone in the service got this phenomenal voice and she wants to go into, you know, whatever... Um, So he's faced with a choice, like, this is my bread and butter, this is my business, but how do I follow God in this? So anyways, 
my point on all that is I don't think American Christians, I think the younger generation um, gets it a little bit better, but I don't think American Christians for the past 50 plus years or whatever uh, have integrated, have understood that God's call in your life involves living differently in how you do business. So that's what's going on. And so specifically, uh, it talks in the, in the prophets, uh, it might have been in Amos, you know, they talked about uh, grabbing up all the land. See, God has a very specific thing in the prophets that you're not allowed to own all the land. It stays in the family, which is why every 50 years, the year of Jubilee, it resets. If somehow you lost your land, you get it back. You can't have these land owners that own, like, the whole country, and everybody pays rent to their land to a particular landlord that's a billionaire. God set it up so that can't happen. Well, that was happening. So they they would uh, they would connive there. Well, anyway, Doug Stone was talking about this, and I heard him say, you know, maybe they convince you, you know, um, here, here, I'll, I'll lend you a hundred grand, you know. Well, no, 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 I, I don't need to lend you money. And they, they convince you enough that you finally take it. And, and what they're really hoping is that um, you have another bad harvest. And so what they're banking on is, okay, you just had a bad harvest. You lived with me alone for twenty years. I'm going to loan you a hundred grand. I know that this is just how life works. Three to five, six, seven years, you're going to have another bad harvest. You won't be able to pay what you owe me because I lent you a hundred money. And when that happens, I'm going to take you to court and demand your loan back. And so that's what they were doing. And so they're grabbing up all the land, okay, and then not returning it on the year of Jubilee. So now, I lived in Missouri, Springfield, Missouri, for nine years. So when I moved, uh, I didn't sell the house. Well, I moved very fast, so I don't think it would have sold because I moved there within two weeks. But uh, I rented the house. So I own a house in Missouri. It's small, about 1,000 square foot. Um, and I've often thought about trying to own a whole bunch of houses um, wherever, Orlando. Um, but to make money in, in rental, you really have to own like 20 plus houses. You don't make any money until you own one house and you rent it. And so that's been in the back of my mind for a long time. So now, you know, studying the prophets and whatnot, and I'm thinking about these ideas, I'm like, so how does that play in? Like, how do you be, I don't think in our culture to eliminate the idea that you can own, you know, multiple houses, um, but how does that play in with not being abusive and taking advantage of people's situations? So I happened to buy my house, the one here in Orlando and Pine Oaks, in 2009. Well, that was right after what? I know somebody lost that house because of the market downturn, and I don't know the rest of the story if they lost a job or, or whatever else, or they took a mortgage they shouldn't have taken. I don't know the rest of the story. But, so, even me getting that house was at someone else's expense um, for half of what they previously bought it for. So, my point in all that, the very long digression, is I don't think we should do these things. And the prophets say you have to. Like, they push you back to it. And they say, no, that's the whole point of being in a covenant with God, is that these efforts matter in how you live your life. So those are those are the aspects that uh, we're referring to and that are a part of what's going on here. So when, um, 
when Abed Narari that we looked at a minute ago was there, within three decades of that time, the prophets um, were clearly saw that both the land and the people of Israel would be snatched away with meat hooks, Amos 4.2, and swallowed by the ravenous Assyrian Empire bite by bite. And so, this is where, what do the prophets know? The prophets know exactly what God tells them, no more, no less. So, they, they don't have a horoscope, they don't have a crystal ball, they have God, who at certain times pulls them up into his divine council, if you will, in the chambers where the secret things are, are determined, and shows them something. Whatever that something is, that's what they have, and that's what they share, and that's what they tell the people. So, in the case of the minor prophets in Syria, God has shown them these glimpses. Listen, you're being completely corrupt, and this is what is going to happen if you don't change. Um, and of course, you know, they didn't. So, the glory days of, of Jeroboam, you know, um, a window of opportunity had opened for Israel, you know, because of the release of the pressure of the Assyrians after the death of um, Adad Narari III. So, as Jehoash and Jeroboam are recouping this, and the, and the city is becoming prosperous, um, what often happens is they forget God. So, most scholars think that Jonah preached um, during that time period. Jeroboam died around 746 or so. So, over here, these are the gates of Nineveh. Um, so that was a seal from Jeroboam's time. These are the gates of Nineveh. And then right here, um, this is a picture of the Assyrian torture that goes on. So I don't know how much you can see from the back, but um, this is a person. That's a person. They're on the ground. Okay, They are uh, tied. Their, their arms and legs are tied. They're like hamstrung kind of, right? So they're tied out. It stretches them out. Um, uh, this is part of the torture technique. Um, I've mentioned to you before that they could they skin you alive. Like they would take you out of your skin suit, like you wear a jumpsuit or a wetsuit, but you have a skin suit, and so they could get your whole skin suit off in one piece. So someone else could, I guess, step right into it if they wanted. Um, kind of like a onesie, you know, for babies. So um, they would they would tie you down like this to to enable them to to skin that off from you. And so this is a picture of, of the, the torture chambers that would, would go on. Um, I have some more information I'll share about that, but I'm going to share it later with you. Um, some of the quotes that we have relating to <coughs> just exactly what they, they did do uh, to people. All right, so with that, okay, what are some of the themes, okay? The sovereignty of God is nothing new. That's a theme in every one of the books, right? It's a theme all through the scripture. Uh, specifically, though, over nations and over people. We see this very directly. Um, you really could add to that um, over creation. All right? The, the use of the word appointed um, in, in the text. Uh, specifically, when you get down to <coughs> Jonah being thrown over. Uh, it tells you that uh, the fish was appointed by God to be there. The plant was appointed by God to, to come shade Jonah. The worm was appointed by God to go eat the, the plant. And so God appoints, God directs. And so um, sovereignty over God, sovereignty over, um, I mean sovereignty is not over God, he is God. Uh, sovereignty over the nations and sovereignty over people and sovereignty even over uh, creation. Also the compassion of God. 
Uh, Walter Kaiser in The Promised Plan of God says the theology of the book of Jonah revolves around the extension of the grace of God to the Gentiles. It's another amplification of, of Genesis 12.3, God's promise to Abraham, um, and Exodus 34.6, that God's loving kindness and faithfulness uh, extends generation upon generation. And uh, lastly, there's a rebuke to Israel uh, to repent. So, God had Isaiah come and he predicted the empire, Persia, that would destroy the empire, Babylon, of the current empire, Syria. Yeah. So when 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 uh, Isaiah is, is prophesying to the south, right? Remember there's Hezekiah and, and Isaiah for the time period? And uh, Isaiah is So, those are some of the themes that we're looking at in the book. Uh, some thematic words relating to that. The use of the word uh, raha in Jonah, or wickedness, okay, evil. The Lord confronts Jonah with the evil of Nineveh. The sailors cast lots to find the source of evil. The sailors confront Jonah, wondering why evil has come upon them. The Ninevite king calls for the inhabitants to turn from their evil. God sees the city turn from evil. God's gracious response to Nineveh displeased, same word, Jonah. He, so in other words, he viewed God's grace as evil. You know when the prophets talk about you uh, saying what is good is evil and what is evil is good? Well, basically Jonah is doing that, a prophet himself, because he's viewing what God did as evil. He's displeased with it, same word. Jonah's anger arises from the fact that God changed his mind. He relents from the evil or disaster he was going to do. And the Lord appoints a plant to save Jonah from his discomfort or evil. Same word again. So the play on words that comes out and, and the, the themes here. You also have the theme of the greatness. Okay, So you have the greatness of Nineveh and you have the greatness of Yahweh or God. Depicted throughout the book. Um, true greatness belongs to the Lord. His greatness is seen in his treatment of the pagan city, control over nature, and his compassion toward the prophets. Okay, you can see on the right the re recurring use of the word great, gadol, in Jonah. Great city, great wind, great storm, great fear, great fish, great displeasure, great happiness. So, great. Okay, it's a superlative book. It's about these, these great things. In the New Testament... Jonah is one of the four Old Testament prophets whose ministry is just referred to by Christ, along with Elisha, Elisha, and Isaiah. Now, it's interesting because 
prophets have some some element of ministry that involves the Gentiles. Elijah, Elisha, both had stories related to Gentiles. You've got uh, Naaman, and you've got Isaiah and his prophecies that also involved the Gentile nations. Jonah is also a sign or a type of Christ's death, burial, um, and resurrection in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11. Jesus is demonstrated in the same passage to be greater than Jonah. And then the repentance of Nineveh is, is a, a slam on Israelites of the day. Okay, What is one of the reasons that God brings up? Uh, this whole thing because the people of Israel don't do it. But God rebukes them. Jesus rebukes them okay, by bringing up Elijah and Elisha because the Israelites, the Pharisees, are being just like Jonah as an ethnocentric and, and a bigotry. And Jesus is calling them out on that. Okay, so what, what does the book actually look like itself as far as the structure? All right. I'm sorry, there's a few more uh, references. So wh where else is uh, Jonah in the New Testament? He's also in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and James 5, 11, in addition to the gospel passages that we, we saw. So he, uh, he's also mentioned several times in the New Testament. The structure of the book. All right. The, the book is, is often divided into to two primary parts, okay? There's only four chapters, a small book. Chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4, all right? Chapters 1 and 2 is Jonah's rejection of God's call. Chapters 3 and 4 is God's or Jonah's acceptance of God's call. So Jonah rejects, Jonah accepts, okay? But there's also something else going on. So you can see um, Jonah's call, okay, 1, 1 to 3. Uh, there's a, a repetition of, of the idea of arise, go, call. And, and that matches up with Jonah's call in chapter 3. It's a repeat. It's almost like going back and starting over. Uh, Jonah and the pagan sailors in 1, 4 to 16. Okay, he flees. Uh, matches with Jonah's resent, um, Jonah and the pagan Ninevites, I'm sorry, um, in 3, 3b to 10, where he goes. Jonah's grateful prayer in 1, 17 to 2, 10 matches up with Jonah's resentful prayer in 4, 1 to 4. And then the, the end piece is Yahweh's message to Jonah in 4, 5 to 11. So you're used to uh, the chiastic structure where normally you're, uh, the turning point or the hinge is in the middle, right? So you would have 3, 3, and then in the middle you would have that, that hinge or turning point. That's not where you have it. So instead of on this one, you have 3 and 3, and, and they match up this way, which is why, why I have them in here like that. So it's A, B, C, A, B, C and then D. Does that make sense to you all? All right, so let's go back to what I talked about earlier. Like, what's the point of the book of Jonah? Well, look at D for the point. The point of the book has to do with God's message to Jonah. Now, we always look at what was the message to the Ninevites and how God sends him and Jonah's the, the missionary, right? He's the prophet Who are the prophets 
primarily for. They got covenant enforcers. Is, is Assyria in the covenant with God? No, they're not. Israel's in the covenant with God. Who are the scriptures being written for? For Assyria to have forever? No. For God's people. It's the Jews today that are still leading, don't we, right? Not the Assyrians, right? Um, so, looking at that, I have to change a little bit of our thinking about what God's trying to accomplish with Jonah and how we approach the book. Can't just be this Jonah story. The pattern of a call, resistance, and call confirmed with a sign is repeated in the lives of many people whom God calls to difficult tasks, including Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah, and even the Apostle Peter. That's from Bruckner in the New International um, Application Commentary. NIV AMP. Very good commentary set, by the way. Uh, extensive, but it's a good set. Really does um, it does not only uh, good background material, but uh, also ha always has a section on contemporary significance and connecting it with uh, our lives and culture today. Okay, so the the ESV Study Bible um, puts it in a chart form for us, and. <coughs> um, Basically, if you, if you look at the step outline here, you similarly find what at the top? Jonah's lesson about compassion. So that's basically the same thing, okay? So uh, they've just structured it in a way that kind of uh, demonstrates that um, instead of just the ABC that I have that had there. So that's out of ESV Study Bible, so you can, you can pick that up. I don't know, um, if you go to ESV.org, purchase stuff so I know that I have complete access but I think that they have some of their study Bible stuff free so uh, if you don't own that and you're looking for like notes on that I, I won't guarantee you that the ESV study Bible is but they have other like they have a transformation study Bible they have a global study Bible they have a literary study Bible there's a bunch um, so you can go and, and check that out um, so looking at that, um, what I want to do here is <coughs> I know that I always give you a, a couple of uh, outlines, just like you'll find in a commentary. We'll always give you several. But I want to focus primarily on, on the bottom half of this here. Um, the, the top half is another structure from uh, CPBI. I think that's Centerpoint uh, Bible Institute. So God's compassion on Jonah and God's compassion on Nineveh is kind of how they have you know the top half structured. But if you look at the bottom, you'll see some similarities and differences between the two halves of the book, okay? Um, chapters 1 and 2, pretty much, and then chapters uh, 3 and 4 on the right side. So the top section is similarities, all right? And you can, you can see the whole repeat of how God called Jonah uh, to go back to Nineveh. And the bottom are some similarities, and so or differences, I mean. So in, in one three Jonah runs away and goes to Tarshish. In three two he actually obeys and goes to Nineveh where he's supposed to. And two two says in my distress I called to the Lord from the depths of the grave I called for help. And in four three now O Lord take away my life it is better for me to die than to live. Um, so in chapter two he is dying, and he prays to live. Um, and chapter four he's living and he prays to die. Um, and that's after the great repentance has already happened. You know, so it's kind of like, um, you know, the kid you can never please. You know, you make him his favorite dessert and he's still not happy, right? There's something, oh, whatever. So that's, that's what's going on 
uh, as well there. So Jonah 1 to 2. All right, let's just look at it and make a few um, introductory comments. We, we're not going to uh, go verse by verse. This is a survey course. It's just an overview. We're just going to point out a, a few of the things about it. So in verse 1, the superscription, as it's called, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and that tells us uh, the call from God, who it's to. Gives us the background setup. Uh, very short, one sentence here. And that's, that's pretty much it. So in verse 2 he says, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. So now in verse 2, now we get into the city of Nineveh. Okay? So now we have a little bit of a, uh, a context for where we're going. But still, if you're um, you know, a modern American, what's Nineveh? I mean, most people, if you ask them, wouldn't have a clue where that even was. Uh, most probably don't know what's in the Bible. I don't know. Uh, but they wouldn't know anything about it. So uh, the city of Nineveh, uh, situated on the, on the Tigris, uh, or where the Tigris and the Kosair rivers uh, come together, was first settled in the 7th um, millennium B.C. According to the Bible, Nimrod is the founder of the city. Major excavations took place under um, Henry Laird in 1845, and the diagram shows the results of those excavations, especially as they reflect the period of the Assyrian Empire from 1400 to 609 B.C. So around 1000 B.C., there occurred a great revival of Assyrian power, and Nineveh became a royal city. It was a thriving city during the first half of the first millennium and contained such luxuries as public squares, parks, botanical gardens, and even a zoo. One of the great archaeological finds is the library of King Ashurbanipal. The size of the city was about 1,850 acres. The Book of Jonah reflects the flourishing nature of Nineveh at this time. Nineveh eventually fell to the Medes and the Persians. And so you can see that um, it's just off the, the Tigris here. You can see the the river going right through it, and a little bit, you know, about the, about the layout. That's from the ESV Study Bible, by the way. So you can um, you can check that out. Turn there just in case you have it. Uh, what else do we know about Nineveh? Um, surrounded by rich farmland, all right, controlled major trade routes from the Tigris River. It was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. Sennacherib made it as capital in the late eighth century. Um, it's now an urban center by the mid-7th century. Um, Doug Stewart made some comments about the urbanization also. During this time period, not just in Nineveh, uh, but also in Israel and Jerusalem and Samaria, there's a move away from the agricultural side. And this plays back into what I was saying about buying up property. When you have your own land, you, you have a, a means of survival. Because the bottom line is, what do you need to survive? In our culture, you need a job because you need money, right? So that's because you live where? In the city, right? You live in urban areas, right? If you leave, live out in the country, now you still, um, you know, in our world, you still got to pay electric if you want electricity. I mean, you don't have to have electricity, right? Um, and, you know, put a house in the paper already. But you go back in time. If you have land, you build your own house. You don't buy it ready-made, right? You, you build it with friends or neighbors, and you, you stack stones, and you get a roof if you can. If you can't, well, then you just have the stones to keep the whatever's out, right? So as people move into the cities, though, guess what? You lose all that. So how do you survive in a city? 
you have to rely upon other people. Someone's got to do your job. You've got to be able to trust people. They've got to be trustworthy. So think about what the prophet rails against. Unjust weight, unjust measures, taking advantage of people, oppressing people, right? So, so this is what happens. So you come to the city, and well, you've got to eat. Which means you've got to get money. Which means you've got to get a job. So if the only person offering you a job is offering you two cents an hour, then what do you do? You take it. That's all there is. You've got to eat, right? So this is oppression. This is taking advantage of your situation when the person has the means to pay you more than two cents an hour. Okay? I'm exaggerating. That's the point. So that's part of what's going on here, this urban center. So what happens? The rich get richer and the poor get So the rich in commerce and uh, the deep in tradition. Okay, so Nineveh. It was built by Nimrod. We mentioned that a minute ago, maybe around 3000 BC. It's about 550 miles from Samaria. Okay, Samaria is what? That's the capital of Israel. So it's about 550 miles. We're talking two to three months. Okay, the inner wall stretched eight miles around the city. It was 50 feet wide and 100 foot tall. That's the inner wall. The outer wall would have been bigger. So 100 feet high and 50 feet wide. So in other words, impregnable, right? I mean, you're not going to do that. Now, previously, there was two plagues that occurred and a total solar eclipse on June 15th, 763 BC. Just, you know, we know that information, right? People actually reported stuff. So why, why does that matter? Because everything is, to you and me, it wouldn't matter. We're like, who cares? So everything was connected to the divine. Those were viewed as bad omens, divine anger. So what many scholars think is that that helped to um, prime the Assyrians for their repentance with Jonah. They, they already thought they were under the displeasure of the gods. And so he comes in and says, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. Well, so they, they believe it. All right. So I guess now is as good a time as any. A debate to tell you now, or, or to leave it to the end, as to why Jonah was so angry. <laughs> but the Assyrians were proud of their cruel and terrible reputation, and they went to great trouble and expense to record their exploits for posterity. Archaeologists have uncovered many unique, large stone wall panels with carved depictions of grisly post-battle scenes, like those you want which were erected in palaces so that they could be seen daily. In addition, written descriptions of post-battle tortures of prisoners were preserved on obelisks and cylindrical pillars. Discovered in these pictorial and written displays are gruesome details and horrific boasting. It is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. This is all in, uh, in Bruckner's commentary, the NIV application commentary. Um, records brag of live dismemberment, often leaving one hand attached so they could shake it before the person died. They made parades of heads, requiring friends of the deceased to carry them on elevated poles. They boasted of their practices of stretching live prisoners, that's what you saw, with ropes so that they could be skinned alive. The human skins were then displayed on city walls and poles. The commissioned pictures, they, they commissioned pictures 
of their post-battle tortures where they had piles of heads, hands, feet, and heads impaled on poles, eight heads to a stake. So fist kebabs, but heads of people. They pulled out the tongue and testicles of live victims and burned the young alive. Those who survived the sack of their city were tied in long lines of enslavement and deported to Assyrian cities for labor on building projects. Tens of thousands and hundreds of cities suffered this fate over the 250 years of the Assyrian reign of terror. Two Assyrian kings distinguished themselves in boasting of cruelty before the time of the prophet Jonah. Ashur and Ashurbal, who was from about 883 to 590, or 859 BC, wrote, For example, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me, and I draped their skin over the pile of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built with them a tower before their city. I burned their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others' noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of the many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. Asher and Asherpal's son, Shalmaneser III, which we've already looked at, 858-824, is famous for his pictorial depictions of cruelty in large stone-relief wall panels. A depiction of one panel shows an Assyrian soldier grasping the hand and arm of a living captured enemy whose other hand and both feet had already been cut off. Dismembered hands and feet fly through the air in the scene. Severed enemy heads hang from the conquered city's walls. This cultural tradition of boasting of torture continued in Assyrian records in the 8th century as Assyria expanded its empire. Tiglath-Pileser III threatened Israel, capturing and deporting some of the population. Shalmaneser V sacked Samaria um, and finished the job in 722, leading to what we now call the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. He enslaved 27,290 Israelites, according to his records. Sennacherib, who moved the capital of Assyria to Nineveh, besieged the people of Jerusalem, and then Yahweh delivered them from Hezekiah's time, 185,000 died. So, this is the backstory. Why Jonah is dying? They they were the Gnostics uh, of their time period, and so what Jonah does when God calls him to go to Nineveh, verse two, right? What does he do? Verse three. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. If you remember the map way in the beginning, okay. So Nineveh is about two to three miles that way, and Tarshish is about similarly that way. So where he's supposed to go is over to Nineveh. Okay? What he does instead is gets on a boat down here in Joppa, okay, Philistine territory, um, and is gonna head west, complete opposite direction. Alright? That's simply um, what one of their sh sailing ships would have looked like, something like that. Okay? So he, he has no intention of, of going over there. Okay, starting in verse four through sixteen. This is a chiastic structure outline of, of what the passage looks like. All right? So let me point out a few other things, though, in the text. All right? uh, notice, first off, that Jonah keeps going down. There's a, there's a repetition of the phrase, uh, he goes down, or similar terminology. So in verse 2, he's told to get up, okay, get up and go. But in, in verse 3, he goes down to Joppa. And then in verse 5, he went down to the lowest part of the vessel, 
And then um, in verse 15, I don't think he uses the word down, but then he goes further down because he goes into uh, the sea. So he's going down, 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 right? But not a burning ring of fire, you know, in the ocean. So <laughs> three of you laugh. I think three of you know what song I'm talking about, right? So, or it was a bad joke. Either one. Anyways, um, no, another thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice um, in the Holman it has the word hurled or sometimes throw. So while, while Jonah's going west, uh, God is hurling stuff at him. So in verse 4, he hurls a violent wind. And then in verse 5, he throws, or the sailors throw or hurl the ship's cargo. And then, um, let me see, I'm missing. Down in verse 12, um, Jonah says, throw or hurl me into the sea. In verse 15, they did throw or hurl him into the sea. And so in chapter 1, you've got throw or hurl like um, four different times. And so there's this repetition. It continues in chapter 2 in verse 3. He says, you threw me, you hurled me into the depths when he's, when he's crying and praying out to God um, in that aspect. All right, verse 6. You see that God's not the only one that says get up. The phrase is used by the captain. So God says get up and go. Now, the captain then says, get up, in verse number 6. And then that's going to be repeated again in chapter 3 when the call is repeated to Jonah by God. Um, verse 9 of chapter 1 is one of the key verses. Um, in this chiasm, and it's not as, yes, it is. It's the center in this chiasm right here. Jonah's confession in verse 9. Well, what's the confession? That I serve Yahweh. I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh. <laughs> I just happen to be running away from him. Because that's how I worship. <laughs> Isn't that how some people worship today? Maybe we do. I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. And then it says in verse 10, the men were even more afraid and said, well, what have you done? So he explains to them that the pagans have more sense than Jonah. The pagans don't want to throw him over. They know he's going to die. Jonah's like, listen, you're about to get destroyed. <laughs> throw me over, okay? God's ticked off at me. All right? So... You want to live? Well, throw me over. Eventually, what do they do? They eventually throw them over. There's nothing else. They, they, they row hard. They throw goods over. They lighten the boat. God is like going to destroy them. Now, the Philistines, they're, sea, they're seafaring people. They're boat people. They're water people. They know what storm kills and what storm doesn't. So the storm is really, really bad. Look at verse 17. The Lord appointed a great ship. So here we have the word appointed. This is going to repeat itself throughout um, the book. The majority of them, I think, are actually over, I don't know if I marked them all. In chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant. In verse uh, 7, uh, God appointed a worm. And so he appoints a, a fish, a plant, and a worm. All these related to Jonah for sure. The fish to save him. obviously the, the opposite. So in chapters 1 and 2, there's some additional thematic cohesion uh, between the two. You look at the sailors and you look at the prophet. You see the, the crisis. You see they both pray. You see there's deliverance for both and sacrifice and vows are both offered. So the prayer of Jonah 
um, is actually a prayer that uses a lot of the Psalms in it. If you're familiar with the Psalms and you read Jonah chapter 2, then you would maybe um, think about different Psalms. I'm not saying you would know every one of those, but look at the different Psalms that are alluded to or illustrated in Jonah 2. That's a lot of Old Testament in there. So uh, Jonah obviously knew the words, and he's calling upon all these different uh, psalm passages in his prayer. Chapter 3 and 4. Um, on that note, when, when Jonah goes, so, so in chapter 3 he, he gets the call again, this time he obeys, and Nineveh repents. So let me make a, a quick comment on the, on the word or idea of repent here. So would say, like, they didn't become a, a Christian like you would think of today. Um, by repent, what does it mean they did? Well, they stopped their wickedness. Like, why was God calling them to the task? Because of their wickedness. Um, if you look in chapter 3, Jonah preaches, and we have, like, one sentence. Okay, so he finally gets there, right? And, and what's he say? Probably with a bad attitude, also. He sets out on the first day of his walk in the city, and he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. One sentence. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't say anything else, but what we have in the text is one sentence, okay? In 40 days, God's going to wipe the world with you. He's done. In 40 days, you're done. You're toast. You're burnt. The word overthrown there is the same word used in Genesis 19 for Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is overthrown. Rain down sulfur, right? So they believe him. They're like, he's, he's going to torch them. The fire's coming. They proclaimed a fast and they dressed in sackcloth. You read the rest of the few verses, you see that from the king all the way down, including the animals, sackcloth and ashes, mourning, okay? It's a funeral. Maybe God will turn. And in verse 10 it says, And God saw their actions. They had turned from their evil way. So he relented from the disaster he had threatened, and he did not do it to them. Okay? Why did he relent? Well, chapter 4 uses the word relent several more times. Jeremiah 18, 7 to 8, God had said that if the people will change their ways and they will come back to him, then he won't have to dish out the punishment. The whole point is correction. Discipline and punishment and judgment are all very closely uh, intertwined in the biblical story. It's part of God's discipline. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or studied the topic, but in Hebrews, Hebrews uses the word uh, discipline, the father disciplines his son, and it's picking up all the imagery of the Old Testament that, that God disciplined Israel. But God educated Israel. But God corrected Israel. But God taught Israel. All of those words are part of the same storyline um, in the wilderness. So there was an aspect of they being punished because of their sin and rebellion. But there's also an aspect where he was educating them on what it means and how to live as a child of mine. So you have to realize that all of that is wrapped up in this aspect. And so um, in chapter 4... Um, we see that Jonah's upset because uh, God has relented. So he prays, Lord, isn't this why I said while well, I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate. God is slow to become angry, rich in faithful love. Faithful love is that Hebrew word hesed about covenant faithfulness and the one who relents from sending disaster. So God didn't do it. Exodus 32. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. Okay? This is as old as Exodus. 
So the idea of how does God change his mind? Does he change his will? Well, there's, there's a built-in um, conditionality to God's judgment and punishment. If you will repent, then he doesn't have to wipe you out. The whole goal has always been relational, right? To be in a right relationship with him. And so that's what we have here. And so Jonah is ticked because they didn't get wiped out. So what is Jonah doing? So Jonah goes outside the city and builds a little shelter. Now Doug Stewart says that what this was is he would have gotten rocks and whatnot and built a little shelter and there would not have been a roof on it. Okay, so it would have protected from some of the wind and the elements, but it wouldn't have had a roof, which is why when God grows the plant for him, suddenly he's got like a roof, right? So what is Jonah doing? Well, he's sitting outside the city hoping God's going to show forth the city. <laughs> that's what he's hoping. He's waiting for it. He's like, yeah, let's, let's, let's see this happen, all right? I got a front row seat here, all right? Let's watch this get torched. And it doesn't happen. And so now he prays again, and that's the prayer in 4-2. I knew. I knew that if they repented, that you wouldn't torch them. It's exactly why I didn't want to go there. I didn't want them to not get torched. I want you to torch them. And that's what he's upset about. And so then God gives him the plant, right? Uh, verse 6, God, the Lord appoints a plant and grows up, provides shade, and eases his comfort. It's like, oh, oh, this is so nice. I like this plant. This is comfort, you know? I'm just going to sit here, you know, enjoy myself, relax, just wait for the show to start. It's all good. But then when dawn came, God appoints a worm, and he takes the shade away. And so then what happens? The sun beats down, I mean, because it's better for me to die than to live. So now he's back to, I want to die. And so God is like, you're angry about the plant? Is that what you're angry about, really? Like, I kid, I kid you not. I have, this sounds ridiculous, right? You're angry about a plant? This is the conversation we have with, with, with our boy. You know, I mean, he went through a lot of, you know, junk in foster care and adoption system or whatever else. But, like, seriously, things can be going swell. And one second later, the smallest, tiniest thing, massive meltdown. And we're just like, makes no sense. Like, how is this even possible? So, that's what's going on with Jonah. And God's like, um, verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Like, are you really that ticked off? Because the plant just died? And Jonah's like, yep, I'm angry enough to die. Like, that's exactly what my boy says. Yep, I'm done. I don't want it. I'm out. Kill me. Take me out. Like, that's what he says. Over silly stuff like this. And so, God says to him in verse 10, and so this is the capstone, right? You cared about that plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night, and it perished in a night. Should I not about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. So, you care about that little plant. Shouldn't I care more about these people than you care about that plant? And even their animals. Shouldn't I care more about their animals than you care about that plant? Here today, gone tomorrow, wasn't here the day before. And that is the point. It ends like that. Like there's there's no more. Like, so what did Jonah do? Did he pack up and go back home? Did he get right with God? Did he sing praises? Like, I don't know. It's not there. The story's over. And so, the, the, the point of this whole thing is the compassion and the mercy of God. 
Exodus 34. We talked about Exodus 34 probably last week with the prophets. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. I need the next verse. <laughs> I don't have the next verse. It says that, um, oh, yes, I do. I'm sorry. It's right there in the middle. Faithful love to a thousand generations. That's the word, faithful love. It was in Jonah. Hesed. It's, it's God's faithfulness or faithful love. So God demonstrates his faithful love, his covenant love, okay? Uh, not only to God's people Israel, but remember we mentioned Genesis 12, 3 earlier. Through Abraham, all the nations of the world were supposed to be blessed. So what's God doing? He's showing his love through the people of Israel, Jonah, etc., in this case, right? To these other nations, these Gentile nations. Now, again, what was the level of repentance? I, I don't really know. Um, did they all get saved and we'll see them in heaven? I, I don't know. We do know. We'll talk about, I think, Nahum will be next week. Um, but we do know that they went back to their old ways and they did get worse. So, um, if Jonah was still around, he probably would have been, you know? Um, so, it does pose a question, though, for both Jonah and the Ninevites. Like, what was Jonah's repentance in chapter 2? You know? Save me. Okay, you preached me out of the, the fish. Now I can go back. Okay, I'll go tell him now. I'll go tell him, but I, I don't want to still, and I don't want him saved still, and I don't, whatever, you know, I still want him torched. So, you know, I think we can ask the question of both the Assyrians the Ninevites and Jonah, like what kind of change of heart was really there? Um, so, anyways, that's that's a, the book of Jonah in a nutshell. Uh, you could obviously study it a lot more than that, and a lot of a lot of good stuff in there and food for thought for us. So I hope that um, you know I really hope that we will not be bigoted, and I really hope that we will be. I know that in our culture, you know, we have there's a lot of issues um, and things that um, you know may be coming more uh, commonplace in the American culture that previous generations of Christians didn't have to deal with on, on such an open level that uh, we we really struggle with. How how do we represent Jesus? How do we live a faithful life? Um, how do we demonstrate love and compassion towards people? living in sin that uh, we know it's sin, we want them to get right with God um, but somehow not be a jerk all at the same time. Um, well, so let's, we got to pray about it. <laughs> and uh, maybe take some lessons from Scripture. It's, it's not the first time. You know? Sodom and Gomorrah uh, wasn't only a, a place of homosexuality, it was also a place of inhospitableness and a place of to some degree, uh, to the prophets lived elsewhere. So it was all of those things. Um, and we have all of those things here in our own culture, some of which are in our, our churches. They need to be addressed. And so that's, that's our challenge today. So let's end that there. We'll take a 10-minute break, and we'll pick up with Micah.